Good morning. If you take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We will do our best to wrap up our study in Ecclesiastes uh, this morning as we reflect upon the life and the leadership of the Koheleth, of, of his observations, of the wisdom that he shares about the reality of life under the sun. And as we reflect upon some of those realities, bring together all of the other aspects of our study, at least up until this point in time in the book of Ecclesiastes. Before we get started with that, again, I, I want to really encourage you and thank you as a congregation for being engaged and involved in uh, the candidate process for Pastor Ken Zook and his wife, Lisa overwhelming majority of the vote, and for that, we're, we're very pleased. So after the service today, we'll go immediately into the gymnasium, those who can, and there'll just be a cake uh, reception and uh, an opportunity for you to officially uh, welcome them to the ministry here at First Baptist, and uh, whatever the Lord has in store for us moving forward. I also want to give a special recognition to all of the staff who have uh, done an amazing work uh, covering for this old feeble, frail guy right now. Uh, they have stepped up. They have filled in. Um, they've asked no questions. Uh, they've even pushed me to not push so much. And uh, they, they've truly been a blessing. Unfortunately, uh, the blessing that they've proven to be in the last couple of months, I now will have to rely on them in the next several months. I'm slated for this to be my last Sunday with you before the sabbatical, and uh, that's probably good timing, at least from my, my health standpoint, and with Pastor Ken now being on, um, but um, you have a great staff, every single one of them. Um, great attitudes, a great heart for the Lord, a great heart for this ministry. And God has really put us, I, I think, in a great place uh, for me to just step out just, just for a little bit. This was planned, um, not the illness, of course. Uh, over Easter, um, I was out and about and starting to feel normal. And you know I'm not normal, but starting to feel normal. And uh, my immune system is so compromised um, someone shared a little bug with me that went immediately to my lungs, of course, and uh, so I'm back in full treatment for the bronchial pneumonia, and uh, I'll see a specialist this week, so the timing of all of this is, is probably important. I had a lot of other plans for this sabbatical, but I've learned in my life there's only one plan that counts, and, and it's not mine. I will tell you, and this is important, as of Wednesday of this week, we are going to deactivate my email, Pastor Jim at FBJC, because I don't have the personal discipline not to answer that during the sabbatical. So we're going to deactivate that and my contact information, uh, but I've just told you what a great staff we have. Uh, they will find me if I need to be found, and uh, we'll just make sure that uh, you contact them in the coming uh, several months as uh, I go on this uh, sabbatical. In spite of the setback, um, it was important for me uh, to be here and kind of finish well. 
I may have to use a rescue inhaler. I may have to cut it a little short. Um, but God's grace has proven sufficient a hundred times before. So, so maybe we'll get through this too. But I thought it really important uh, that I be here with you today and, and again on Wednesday night. I, I encourage you to be out Wednesdays. It's, it's a six-week study, uh, a family ministry module both for children and for teens and for adults. And uh, I will be there this Wednesday addressing some critical, critical issues, not just in the culture at large when it comes to our identity, ontology, and teleology, uh, but some, some critical issues as to training up the next generation to think discerningly about these issues. We are living in a period of time where the speed of change it's just overwhelming at times. Our world is not the same place it was just a mere six months ago. And as we reflect upon that on Wednesday night, I will kind of put some, some theological and philosophical underpinnings in your understanding so that you might engage this culture and be ready to give an answer to any man who asks a reason of the hope that is in you. That's 6.30 to 7.30 in the chapel and of course, we have children's ministries and, and youth ministries as well. Well, as far as today goes, it's an interesting title. It comes directly from the text in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, goads and nails. What is he talking about? Why, why is he using such terminology? What is happening as he wraps up his comments in this book of Ecclesiastes. Now, I would remind you again that the writer of Ecclesiastes, the Koheleth, is the convener of the assembly. He's gathered together the people of God to reason with them and set in order certain lifestyle issues to take the truth of Scripture and to give proper application to life and when, when we talk about proper application to lives, to give us an understanding of how we are to live our lives in this brevity under the sun. And there are some who would interpret the whole book of Ecclesiastes as the writings of a cynic who could see no good in anything and was just complaining. I think that's a big mistake. There are others who will look at the book of Ecclesiastes and say, well, the writer is just calling for an absolute all-out hedonism. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Do whatever you want. And that, too, is a misunderstanding of the book of Ecclesiastes <clears throat> and the intent of the writer. And from the beginning, we've taken the approach that can be traced back to Sinclair Ferguson, among others, reformed preacher and teacher, that he's playing the role of the apologist. He's looking at life as it is, He's weighing the experiences of life as he knows them to be. He is making observations about the people around him and coming to conclusions that are a little bit different than some of the sages and the wisdom teachers of that day. He is challenging conventional wisdom that can take a turn sometimes when we misunderstand it as being overly simplistic. Just do this and all of your problems go away. And he's saying, that's not life. That's not reality. This is reality. But throughout the context, as he 
pulls the rug out from under us. He makes a landing place, and He reminds us of our hope and promise, and He reminds us of the simple things, and, and in my opinion, He does a masterful job. <coughs> he does a masterful job and bringing us to a place of understanding that may not always be comfortable, but is always for our good. As we reflect on many of the things that he's saying, there seems to be some contradictions in the book. But as you look at the book holistically, as you look at it as a whole, I don't think you find, I don't think you find any inconsistencies as you see it as an apologetic discourse. He's saying, if this, then that. And this is foolishness, and this is wisdom. So as you look at it that way, it makes perfect sense, and I, for one, have thoroughly enjoyed this. I've kind of settled into chapter 3 as being my, my favorite section of the teachings of Ecclesiastes, where he reminds us that there is a time and a season for everything under heaven. Maybe it's because I'm in one of those times that has become my favorite. But all of us go through those times. Everybody's dealing with something at some point and at some time. And over and over and over and over in the text, he deals with the word vanity. Literally understood, vanity means meaninglessness. It's used 34 times in the text. And he's not saying that life and the things of life have no meaning. What he's trying to teach us is that the things in life under the heaven, the things that we experience on a daily basis, are fleeting at best. It's like a breath and a vapor. James talks about that, a, a vapor that, that comes from your mouth and then disappears in, in mere seconds. And, and if there's any underlying theme in the book of Ecclesiastes, it is this reality that you do not live forever, and all of us must come to the reality that we're going to die. We live in a culture today that despises that reality. But as he speaks to that and speaks of vanity, he's not saying that there's nothing in this world that gives no pleasure. He's not saying that there's nothing in this world that can't bring contentment. He's not saying that there's nothing in this world that means anything. He is simply saying whatever is in this world is fleeting at best. And then what? And I believe in chapter 12, in the epilogue or the conclusion of the book, he fills in those blanks. Constantly, he speaks of under the heaven. And if there's one takeaway from the book of Ecclesiastes that I'd want you to know if you read through it again, it's this. He's simply asking the question then, if life is short, how then shall we live? How do we live if life is short? How do we manage the ups and the downs and the difficulties of life. He said, well, we can manage it by striving after the wind, pursuing things that don't matter, or we can manage it by filtering everything through a, a critical metrics that helps us understand what matters today and what matters tomorrow and what matters after we die and what matters after in the judgment. That, that's what he's trying to get us to focus on. So as we look at this book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12 and wrap up some of these things, it'll be a little bit redundant. We're going to talk about things we've talked about before, 
Before we ever get into this, there are so many different opinions on chapter 12. There are some that say that there's a multiplicity of authors. It's not the Koheleth that is speaking. Some who say that whoever is speaking in the epilogue, the wrap up in the book, is taking issue with what Koheleth has said and saying he's wrong and calling us in a different direction. <clears throat> I think that's a misunderstanding. So as we go through this, I believe no matter who wrote chapter 12, and I like to see the book as, as a complete unit, and I still lean with the ancients that Solomon is the author, and the reflections that he makes are on his life based on certain events. In essence, he is bringing to a conclusion in a succinct statement, this is what life is all about. I told you all of that to tell you this. You say, well, why didn't you just cut to the chase? Why why didn't you just tell us? Because he was a student of human nature. And if he just told you, you wouldn't have believed him. He had to take away everything else that you were relying on. He had to act upon your world and my world. He had to look at the brokenness and the lack of fulfillment before he could say, so here's what you do next. And I think that's the masterpiece of what we know to be Ecclesiastes. Pray with me, please. (coughs) Father, give me strength and stamina. Give me clarity in the text. Remind us of the things that we've studied. As we reflect on on chapter 12, as as we deal with the conclusion of the book, as we reflect on the simplicity of it, I pray that now we could all walk away, contemplate and consider and to do exactly what the Koheleth did in assessing our lives, where we are, where we need to be, how we ought to live in this world under the sun until eternity, whatever that might be and look like. And I would ask and pray that as we're faithful to the text, we would find great encouragement in the book of Ecclesiastes. And as we wrap up, pray that we would also reflect upon some serious concerns for our culture, but even bigger than that, for our individual lives and how easy it is for all of us, every last one of us, to fall into the same traps the writer of Ecclesiastes addresses, to fall into those same foolish patterns and tendencies, to believe one thing by a doctrinal statement and to live a different way pragmatically. I pray that we would learn to marry our doctrine with how we live. It's a Kohalas that's attempted to help us do so. I pray that we've gleaned much wisdom. Bless us. So we spend this time this morning wrapping up the book of Ecclesiastes. Encourage us, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, please, looking at verse 8 in chapter 12, be reminded that when he says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. That is the end of the discourse. He is done writing. He is done speaking he has said what he needed to say, 
And now there is a, a conclusion, an epilogue, if you would. Now there is that bringing everything together that he's addressed so far, and he reminds us that life is fleeting, and anything under the heaven, outside of God and, and, and outside of intrinsic good and eternal good, is like chasing after the wind. You never catch it, you never find it, and if you do, it's never going to be enough. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Just prior to this, he talks about the imagery of aging and death. And if you're not unsettled by the reality that you're all going to die, if you have any gray hairs on your head, read verses 1 through 8 again. It's not a pretty picture. And sin will get us all sooner or later. And life is hard. As he talks about that, it is a critical point in the text. It's a literary device called an inclusio, and it's exactly what he says in chapter 1, verse 3. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher. He is telling us from chapter 1, verse 3, to chapter 12, verse 8, I have talked about the vanities of life. And he tells us that he's now going to switch his tone. There's even some, some person differences as, as he speaks here, and he's going to draw it all to a conclusion. But the repetitive language all throughout the text says that the whole time he's been dealing with life under the sun and how are we to live and the present life that God has given to this. In essence, in chapter 8, he is recalling his thesis of chapter 1, verse 3. And in the midst of all of that thesis, all throughout the book is the ever-present reality of death and mortality, a reminder that this doesn't last forever. And he even goes specifically through a number of those things, whether it's material possessions or wealth or whatever it might be, and he says nothing lasts forever. As easy as it comes, as easy as it goes. Life is, is transitional in nature. And this is a paralyzing reality for many, time, many people. And it's paralyzing because people are living all of their lives believing that there's something here that can answer the biggest questions in life and finally, finally give me a sense of purpose. And Solomon's saying, you can't find it here. That notion that you can, and that rejection of a transcendent God and, and the answer in that God creates paralysis for so many people today. I don't know if you've been paying attention to this artificial intelligence uh, realities of the day that's just kind of hitting the news, but, but when it comes to mortality, we, we are now uh, creating these, these images, and, and we're taking uh, things from the past and, and, and allowing people to, to enact and, and, and engage with those who have gone before in some visual imagery and by hearing their voice. Why? Nobody wants to deal with mortality. Nobody wants to deal with death. Nobody wants to wrestle with those deepest questions in life. And in my opinion, 
It is a dangerous thing for AI to be creating those uh, appearances, those, those images, those visitors, what, what, whatever we want to call them, because it never gives closure. Death is the great equalizer, and death and, and, and the whole process of, of, of burial and funeral is one of the most tender times in everybody's life where they have to face that reality, and now we're trying to erase that entirely, as if it never happened. But it did happen. And even in this artificial intelligence, in your heart, if you're honest, you know it happened. And you have to deal with that, and you can't run from that. It is an ever-present reality that is attached to this, a nagging sense that there must be something more. For those who are wealthy, it's one more dollar. To those who are hedonists, it's one more pleasure. To those who are captured by self-indulgence, it's one more push to fulfill my deepest desires in life and find happiness. But even in the midst of all of that, Solomon, in tearing off the Band-Aid, says, there must be something more. That's the apologetic of the book of Ecclesiastes. He is moving toward a purpose and a goal. In fact, he reminds us early on in the text. A generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Things don't change as much as you think they change. There is an order to the universe. It is not chaotic. You can't mold it to your own image. You can't fashion it to your own likeness. There are things that are set that cannot be unset. It is the realities of life, and generation after generation after generation has to deal with those realities. The two big things in Ecclesiastes is the reality of death and mortality and the reality that nothing I found under the sun can appease this nagging sense that there must be something more. You want to know where that comes from? You're created in the image of God and designed for a relationship. You are made for eternal, eternity. You, you are a living, eternal soul destined to an ultimate eternity. And in that nagging sense of reality, that is the something more. It is God's Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that He is. He is. And that's the essence. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and it is the source of wisdom, and it's the comfort when we come to this ever-present nagging sense of reality in a depressing, almost morbid kind of way, he says at the end of chapter 12. And oh, by the way, if you haven't heard what I said already, when you're gone, people will quickly forget you. You're not all that. Oh, thanks for that. Great start to the book. Those are some of the goads and the nails that he speaks of in chapter 12. So as we reflect upon the text and kind of quickly go through this, here we are. 
We're come to the end of the book. He has come to the end of his treatise, his oration, his gathering of the people. And the big question is, so what? So what? Okay, what, what does all of that mean? What comes next? What's the point? He's going to warn us a little bit later in the text that the point is not continuing to go back to the well and figure it out more or to try and make sense of it more. It is to release and let go of all of that stuff and ask the deeper questions, who am I and where am I going? What's next? What's next then? Tell us. Tell us what you've learned. And in the epilogue, he does that. And I believe it's a commentary on all that he said those first 11 chapters. Verse 9, beside being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, not just wisdom. He was more than just someone who dispensed wisdom. He taught them knowledge. That's a key component to understanding the rest of the book. Wisdom informs you of right and wrong and gives you that discernment. Knowledge is, okay, what do I do with that wisdom? That's the so what. What do I do now? Okay, now that I know this, what do I do? And that's really the focus of many of the wisdom writers. You go through the book of Proverbs. They're not teaching deep and, and lofty theologies. It's all built upon that. They're simply saying, so what? How, how does this work? How, how, do, how do I live? And in many ways, that's what, in my opinion, chapter 12 does. It's also important that those who are the sages or the wisdom teachers of that day spent most of their time in academics and, and lofty places talking to the elites of the world. This was, this was uncommon, that this man of wisdom would meet with the people, and he would take all of the things that he'd learned and make them palatable and understandable for the masses. This, for, for him to step out of these these elite circles down to the common man was critically important. And he did that. He didn't think himself better than that. And it says in the text that he taught knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. When he talks about weighing, and this is really important, it is a component of our culture that is absent in every circle. And I I don't like to say this, but it's a component of our culture absent in evangelicalism today. When he speaks of weighing, he's talking about scholarly reading. He's talking about deep thought and reflection. He's talking about thinking deeply about the issues of life, and he's talking about listening to all of the other arguments and synthesizing all of those other arguments to draw clear conclusions. This is hard work that the Kohalas has been engaged in. But he was well equipped for that work. And he's weighing and, and working, and, and he's not asking the common man to do that. He's going to bring what he's concluded to them and throughout the context of the book of Ecclesiastes share many of those cogitations as he arranged many proverbs. And that's a clue where he's saying, in some ways... I'm going to move away from conventional wisdom. And here's what I mean by that. He is not uh, dismissing the Proverbs. He is not uh, dismissing wisdom literature of the past. He's simply saying, sometimes this is too simple 
Life is complex at times. He's not denying the reality that life is, is complex. There's, there's a lot of things to, to unpack. There's a lot of things to think through. So how can life in this paradoxical way be simple and yet complex? Well, that's what he's trying to sort out for them. But he's doing it in a behavioral kind of way, not necessarily a theological kind of way. And he did it with great care. He's a realist, and he's looking at life, and he's saying, wait a second, that can't be true. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So as he's come to this conclusion, he is trying to artfully state his observations for the audience at hand. One of the problems with those great intellects of our culture is that they fail to have the ability to synthesize this down where the common man can understand what's being said. There are few in the history of, of the world that have had that unique ability. I think of Martin Luther being able to do that and, and persuade a, 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 remarkable, a, a remarkable reformation in the church. One of my favorites, R.C. Sproul, had the ability to take these deep, lofty arguments and just say them in the common vernacular. And Solomon's saying, I'm, I'm trying to artfully tell you that I've done a lot of work here, and you're not going to be able to handle everything that I studied and all these theories, but as I've synthesized all of this, here's what I am here to tell you, but I'm going to do so in such a way that you'll remember it. And when we get to the end of the text, how could you not remember his conclusions? Also, Importantly, the conclusions that he had were upright, and they were grounded in truth. There are some who say that he never deals with uh, judgment by way of uh, eschatology. He never deals with, with deep theologies. That wasn't his point and intent. He was seeking to answer the question, how then shall we live if what we believe is indeed true? How do we apply all of that? And, and as he goes through this, it is grounded in the truth Because verse 11, it comes from God. He says, the words of the wise are like goads and nails firmly fixed and are collected sayings. What is a goad? What are the nails that he's talking about? A cattle prod, a shepherd's staff with nails driven through the bottom so that when your tendency is to Get off the trail when your tendency is to stray, when your tendency is to do what the shepherd told you you ought not to do. They take the nail on the end of that prod and you give you a little jab. Don't you love that? Well, you'd be a fool if you loved it. The reason for the goads and the nails is to keep you on the path. So if you don't want to get pricked, stay on the path. That's, that's what he's saying. He's saying that God has gifted you with, with men of wisdom, and their sayings can be hard. And when they're hard and you don't like what's being said, when it, when it pricks your conscience, when it brings conviction to your spirit, be thankful for that. We live in an evangelical world that's not thankful for that at all. Just be nice. Remember that 11th commandment? Just be nice. And allow people 
parade down a path that leads to ultimate destruction and eternal damnation? No, thank you. No, thank you. The Holy Spirit uses goads and pricks in our lives. The wise man uses words to poke us and to prod us. And all of those words given by one shepherd, there is an allusion to, to God the shepherd, a reflection perhaps of Psalm 23, but he's also talking about those gifts of God through men who impart that wisdom, those under-shepherds who say things that sting, but they must be said for the good of all. Unenviably, uh, that has been much of my role in life, to call out that the emperor has no clothes, what's wrong with you? But that's necessary, and that's needful, as long as it's based upon the truth. And if we were to do a study of 1 Kings 3, and we don't have that time, we would see that the source, inevitably, of Solomon's wisdom came because he asked God for that wisdom, and God said, I'll, I'll give it to you. Which means to, to me that, that this passage has even more credence that it is God who gave him the wisdom to draw these conclusions, and thereby the text is in the canon of Scripture, and we can believe that this was God-breathed, using this man to teach us these truths for our good. And these goads and nails are the constant nagging truth and realities you can't avoid. Now, notice I didn't make a grammatical error there. I wasn't going to say the constant nagging truth because there's one truth. There's not multiple truths. There's one truth and the realities that you just can't avoid. This is the biggest problem in much of this trans and, and, and sexual revolution that we're in right now. There are nagging truths that there are no answers for for those who are moving away from the true truth. It is vacuous. It is empty. There's nothing there. You want to hear more? You come Wednesday night. So here's some of the things that I've learned in the text about these constant nagging truth and realities that you can't avoid. Number one, The vanity of self-indulgence always leads to destruction. We could read in chapter 2, Solomon suffered from an eye test, not E-Y-E, but capital I. And I did this, 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 and there doesn't seem to be any room for God in the description of that. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 10, and whatever my eyes desired, I kept not from them. Whatever I wanted, I got. Why was that? Because not only had God given him wisdom, he gave him riches. He gave him notoriety. He gave him a position. My heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all of my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I expended doing it. Behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. What gives him the right to goad and prick and tell me these things? Because he's a man who was there, and he did it. 
He had more than anyone before him. He was at the top of the heap. If this world could provide anything, this guy would have found it. And he said, there's nothing. It is futile indeed. He warns us that death is inevitable. Life is short. He tells us that the hard work of life will bring sorrow, not, not consistent pleasure, not the nice things in life. But as soon as you get something, then you have to keep something. And as soon as you establish a standard of living, you have to keep that standard of living. And, and it's this trap tells us that enough is never enough when what you have controls you. Did you hear that? Enough is never enough when what you have controls you. He teaches us that time marches on, and there's not a thing you can do about that. There's a time to be born and a time to die and a bunch of stuff that happens in between. Time marches on. How many of you have had that experience? Where did the years go? What happened? How did I get here to this place? He teaches us that injustice and oppression will always be with us, and he warns us in the book of Ecclesiastes that the rulers and the government are the biggest offenders when it comes to injustice and oppression. Do you notice in the culture, though, that also the biggest lecturers? Nothing changes. There's nothing new under the sun. Solomon said this ages ago, and yet we expected something different. He told us that worship is not an end to self-fulfillment. It's not to make you feel good about yourself. It is to bring glory to the king. It is to honor him in his holiness. And when we gather together, it's not to sing your favorite songs or give you a lift for your week. It is to usher you into the reality of seeing your Savior and the holiness of your God and in reverence saying, what an awesome God we serve. What a hard lesson. It's not why I came, Pastor Jim. You're in the wrong place then. And I have a lot of goads and pricks for you. This worship service is not about you, and it's never been about you. It is about our King, ever wise, immortal, coming again. He tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes that we can never know the mind of God nor His ways. I'm still trying to figure it out, though. Isn't that the human tendency? I, I know what the truth is, but I'm still working hard to figure it out. You can never know the mind of God. He tells us that death comes to all, both the wise and the fool. He warns us that you're going to have to leave whatever to someone who comes after you, who've exercised no toil and will have no appreciation for that. Stern warning for families. What are you leaving for your children? Good work ethic? That's not a bad thing. It's not the best thing. What are you leaving for your children? A sense of financial security? It's not a bad thing, but it's not a good thing. What we need to be leaving for our children is an eternal weight of the lessons of the book of Ecclesiastes and point them toward God. He spends the beginning of chapter 12 talking about that. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth before everything starts to fall apart. He reminds us And in every old person, there's a young person wondering, what happened? For all that optimism, running headlong into reality, what happened? 
As he reminds us of all of that, there's some hard lessons. I'm not sure I like them all, but they're goads and pricks to remind us of the things that matter most. And you have a choice to make in your study of the book of Ecclesiastes and this process of time marching on. You can live in your old age very sad, grumbling about how much the world has changed and how much you're suffering, or you can make that time in your life one of the most precious times of your life, believing that a better day is coming. What's it going to be? That's what, that's what he's dealing with in the book. That's the purpose in these last three months. January 24th is when all this stuff started. That's the purpose in these last months to find something good to be thankful for. And you know what I've learned? There's always something to be thankful for. There's always something that you can take away, even in your misery. You have to make some choices in life, and he brings us to that reality. So he asks, in essence, what gain has the worker from his toil? What is the point of all this stuff and work under the sun? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful, and it's time. It's a reflection of the early verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It's God who orders our steps. It's God who orders our seasons. It's God who orders our challenges. It's God who allows things that trip us up. It's God who allows us to wrestle with the deeper issues of life. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And He's also put eternity in man's heart. That's that nagging sense that there must be more. Yet so, he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning and the end. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, and also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. That is God's gift to man. Now, let me make this key point. God's gift to man is not relegated to the moment or the seasons, or the stages. God's gift to you and God's gift to me is life. No matter what its length, God's gift to us is life. Make the most of the opportunities and the life that He has given you. Verse 12. She begins to wind down reflect upon these realities. He says, my son. Gets very personal now. He's going to pour his soul out after he's emptied his mind of these thoughts. Beware of anything beyond these things. And of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. In a very heartfelt pleading kind of way. He's saying, listen, stop looking for the answers in all of the wrong places. Stop. And then he warns us that there's no end to books, and there's much weariness in the flesh. I've been a almost a professional student in my life. I have numerous degrees. I'm not sure I'm any smarter. 
than I used to be, have more knowledge than I used to have. But I also understand it's weary to ask the same questions over and over and over and over and come up with different answers. Someone says, why are you trying? I've given you what you need. I've told you what you need. Don't get sucked up in all of this. Remember what we just said? No one can ever know the mind of God or His ways, so why are you continually trying? That's, that's what He wants. He's not anti-education. He's not anti-deep thinking. He says, there's a point in time where you just need to give it up and surrender to the God who sits on the throne. Just, just stop it already. It's hard to do for some. Easier to do for others. They never think about anything. But that's a big mistake. He tells us that in the text. It goes back even to the ancient Greek philosophers and, and the battles through the ages. Yes, my son, pay attention. Much study is a weariness of the flesh. So, verse 13, the end of the matter. If you missed everything else that I've said, or if you didn't understand what I was trying to say up until this point in time, let me do it in this artful, skillful, remembrance kind of way, like the Proverbs, right? He's a wisdom writer, speaker. All has been heard. This doesn't mean that he exhaustively dealt with every situation in life. Life is complex. And there are questions that we will always have. Those questions aren't bad questions, but they're endless. When he's saying all has been heard, he is simply saying, I looked into materialism. I looked into hedonism. I looked into self-centric worship of self kind of living. I looked into some of the most important elements of life, and that's enough to tell me this is what God expects of you. And in an artful, simplistic kind of way, it's just beautiful. Fear God and keep His commandments. You mean to tell me that you pontificated for 11 chapters to come to that? Remember what he told us? Had to rip away your platform and your comfort, and I had to goad you and prick you and show you how wrong you were before you would listen to what's really right. And now he's telling you what's really right. Fear God and keep his commandments. This fear is not a, an anxious dread of God. It is a deep reverence and respect for God. And in essence, he's saying, every day you live your life, you must have a deep respect and reverence for God and His laws and His ways if you are ever going to negotiate the same things that I just negotiated, if you're ever going to find your way through the same obstacles that I had to find my way through. The kind of fear that he speaks of is almost a filial kind of fear, the kind of fear a, a child has for his father that, that is rooted, that's rooted in respect and creates a longing for that child to spend time with their dad. What a beautiful picture that is. Fear the God who loves you. Fear the God who keeps you. Fear the God who said, this is the way it has to be. Fear the God who said, this is what I expect you to do. Fear God and keep His commandments. True reverence and respect for the holiness of God always results 
in obedience always. And the more you see him for who he is, and the more you reverence him for who he is, the more prone you are to be goaded and pricked toward obedience, to live his way, not your way. And that's the intent as he's gone through this book. And in the end, he says, for this is the whole duty of man. This is really what life's all about. Now, interestingly enough, this is a cosmological, teleological, um, ontological argument for it all started with God and it all ends with God. And as soon as you get that right, you'll be able to sort out everything else. And until you do, all of these books will bring weariness because there are no other answers. And then he adds a caveat that's really interesting because he doesn't speak to this much in the text. He says, for God will bring every deed into judgment. He's speaking of future judgment. Well, no doubt we know that there is an eschatological judgment where everyone will stand before a holy and righteous God. Everyone will have an eternal destiny. Everyone will be banished to the devastating consequences of hell or through Christ alone, ushered into glory, and so shall we ever be with our Lord. There is no in-between. But the judgment is coming. Mark my words, if you want to bet on anything today, judgment is coming. Everybody, everybody is accountable to the Creator and the Maker of the universe. But I also believe that if we speak of this judgment, he is talking about the judgments that we make every single day. What does he mean by that? So if God has blessed you with this, enjoy that and stop pursuing something more. He's talking about every single day making these judgments and assessments that God is on the throne. He is the giver of all things. And find contentment in your life. Stop looking at everybody else and stop running around trying to find the answer. Enjoy the life that God has given you. But be reminded that every single day must be measured against the judgment and must be exercised in all of the decision-making with a judgment that only comes from truth. Nothing is relative, although it may be of minor significance. Everything that you do is tied to some deep belief somewhere. He's bringing that out. He says, in that time of judgment, every secret thing will be revealed. Ooh, that's haunting. If you didn't have enough motivation to do the right thing, someone says, you're not going to base you on what people see. He's going to reveal the secrets of your heart. That ought to intimidate all of us. It's perfect, holy, righteous God evaluating our lives, even the secret things, and every one of you has secrets. Is it a threat? No, he's saying this is reality. Whether good or bad, this is reality. And because of all of that, so what? This is how you need to live. Everything 
begins and everything ends with God, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And if you want to know how to live, you must start with God. That has been his treatise. That's what he has built up to. And that reminds me of the words of, again, one of my favorite theologians, right now counts forever. Today, when my heart is, is pulled toward hedonism, today, when my heart is pulled towards another, another pleasure, today, when my heart is pulled toward another dollar, give me the wisdom, God, to know and to measure and to judge and to say, this is what God would have me to do. Every decision in life matters And it's not the sum of your decisions, it's the decision-making every single day that matters, and it's those things that will weigh in the eternal judgment in the future. Every single day, as R.C. says, right now counts forever. Ought to have that kind of wisdom of of Solomon, guys like R.C., you can't forget that. Right now counts forever. Whatever you're thinking, whatever you're doing, and the decisions that you make have a bearing on eternity. The author of Ecclesiastes, and I will wrap up. I'm a little long, but I had to talk a little slower today because my breath. Maybe that's a good thing. I I don't know. Um, The cake will be there, all right? And and I'm almost done. Tuchelheleth is both a realist and a pragmatist. He knows that misery is a reality in life, and he He's aware that most people know that there are going to be difficult times. Koheleth also believes that this recognition need not be crippling. On the contrary, the knowledge that life will be difficult at times will help one appreciate the pleasures here and now and today. It reminds me of the words of Christ, tomorrow is sufficient for the evil thereof. Today matters. The present is what matters. For anyone who comes into existence is only here for a fleeting season, and everything else is vanity. Solomon is saying, we need to learn to live life with a biblical perspective on a daily basis through the rest of our life to the point of judgment. And as we look at our lives, and as we assess where we've been, as we assess where we're going and answer the two biggest questions in life, at least in my opinion, who am I and where am I going, we must be reminded of the artful words of the Kohalath. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it. So the people fear before Him. And I pray that gives you great comfort today. You say, but you don't know what I'm going through. God has done it. You don't know what I'm facing, and you have no ability to change that. Fear God and keep His commandments. You don't know how hard it is to live soberly and righteous. You're talking to the wrong guy. I know how hard that is. Fear God and keep His commandments. He is simply telling us that we have a God who sits on a throne, you're not him, and everything's going to be okay. So even the season that I'm in, you don't think he knows? You don't think he understands my challenges? You don't think he knows when I don't get frustrated? 
You don't think He knows when I have all of these questions and nobody can? He knows, and He knows, and He knows, and He knows. And here's what He tells me. Fear God and keep His commandments. Because that's what life's all about. Make the most of this opportunity. Right now counts forever. To God be the glory. Amen and amen. What is He doing in your life today? Father, thank You. Your grace and mercy, overwhelming to me again. So I was able to get through this. I thank you. Thank you for the patience of your people. Thank you for Pastor Ken and Lisa. And I thank you for the times such as this, not just in, in our church life, but Father, even in my personal life, there's a reason. And I pray that I, I grow through this. Pray that I glean a greater appreciation for the little things in life. Pray that I learn, and it's been a challenge, to take a deep breath and enjoy that stuff. And I pray that in some way, I've modeled a little bit of what we've learned in the book of Ecclesiastes, and I pray that you continue to shape this body and those who know you and love you conforming them to the image of your Son, reminding them that right now counts forever, revealing to us that you know and we can't change what you know. You do and we can't change what you do, but, but we're desperate for the peace that passes understanding. Grant it to us, I pray, and equip each one of us in making the decisions of everyday life To know how then shall we live. Teach us to fear God and keep His commandments. May the glory be yours alone, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.